This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. And we're going to talk this morning about deflating our pride from verses 1 through 11. We're continuing in our series on the Gospels, Taste and See, as each week we're looking at a different text that in some way features a meal. And today we're, we're going to be in Luke 14 and take your Bible and follow along with me in verses 1 through 11, deflating our pride. Luke 14 And beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, as we just heard the choir sing so beautifully, every high thing must come down. And you tell us that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. But Father, if we're honest, we have to admit that all of us struggle with the sin of pride. We have to admit that, that, that all of us have deep within our fallen nature um, a puffed upness, a pride, the sin of pride, which is really at the root of so many other sins in our lives. We pray that you would show us how that sin can be dealt with, how it can be deflated, that we might honor you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes our culture does see things that are just so kind of obviously absurd that you just know future generations are going to kind of laugh at us. And uh, that was the case recently before the Super Bowl with the whole issue of deflate gate. 
you know, if Jesus tarries and people are still watching TV a hundred years from now and they show footage of the major news channels, not ESPN, but the major news channels uh, sitting there leading with the story about a dozen deflated footballs. And they show footage of serious journalists, news anchors, uh, sitting there talking about, you know, how f- the pressure in footballs, uh, the pounds in footballs, uh, how, they get, how they get pumped up, how they possibly got deflated. I mean, what are future generations going to say? If we were wiser, we would be far more concerned about how we get pumped up with pride. And how that pride can be deflated. Because the Bible says over and over again that God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Pride is something that we all struggle with. How can it be deflated? That's that's really what this text is all about. Because in this text, Jesus kind of pulls off a a deflate gate of his own. Jesus is going to seriously take the the pressure out of some people that were puffed up with pride and self-righteousness. And you say, yeah, people like those Pharisees. Well, maybe people like us. Because the truth of the matter is that we have far more in common with the Pharisees then we would like to admit, you know, this will help you. When, you. when you read the Gospels and you read about the Pharisees, we're conditioned to think of the Pharisees as bad guys because they were opponents of Jesus. But the truth of the matter is that in the first century, in first century Israel, the Pharisees, and this will help you, to understand texts where you read about the Pharisees. In first century Israel, the Pharisees were not considered to be bad guys at all. They were considered to be the good guys. The Pharisees were considered to be men of the people. They were considered to be pious patriots. Upright people who loved their country. Now, Sadducees, kind of a different category. The Sadducees were sort of in the high priestly class. They collaborated with the Romans and so forth. Not the Pharisees. The Pharisees stood against Rome. They were considered by the people to be very patriotic, upstanding people. Kind of like a lot of us in this room. But inside, the Pharisees had all kinds of bad things, sins going on. And, and, and one of those things was pride. Pride is one of those sins that, that we can have in our lives and still, and still be uh, viewed as you know, upstanding members of the church or the community. But it's one of the sins that's most repugnant to God. Now, how can we deal with it? What do, what do we see in this text. Well, the first thing we see is the traps. The traps. Verse 1. The Bible says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him 
carefully. Now, most scholars believe that this was a carefully orchestrated setup because the Pharisees knew that Jesus on several occasions already, had healed people on the Sabbath. And that was against their law. Not against God's law. But see, the Pharisees had, they had come up with a whole series of, of traditions and rules to govern the observance of the Sabbath. And so they knew that Jesus had broken one of those uh, rules by healing people on the Sabbath before. And so what do they do? They arrange for this dinner to happen at the home of a Pharisee, and they put right in front of Jesus on the Sabbath a desperately sick individual. Verse 2, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, dropsy meant that he had swelling. He was retaining fluid, and his torso was swollen up. His limbs would have been horribly swollen as well. And of course, all of this swelling meant that something really bad internally was going on with his organs. This man is probably terminally ill. But instead of having pity and compassion for him, the religious leaders use him as a pawn to entrap Jesus. Well, clearly... They don't understand who they're dealing with because Jesus is on to them from moment one. Jesus understands from the very beginning exactly what they're trying to do. And so Jesus says in verse 3, he responded to them saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now the tables have turned. Now they're the ones who are in the trap. Because they know that if they respond to this question by saying, well, yes, you can heal on the Sabbath, they're going to be breaking their own rule, right? But if they say, no, it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath, they're going to appear to lack compassion. And so they just sit in sulking silence. Verse 4, but they remain silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And, and, and the Greek, when it says that Jesus took him, when he took the man, it means that he embraced him. He embraced him with compassion. And when it says that he healed him, it means that he healed him not merely of the, the symptoms of the, of, the, of, the, of the dropsy, the swelling, but he healed him internally of whatever was producing the symptoms. And he sends this man away healthy and whole. And then he turns to these religious leaders because he has serious business to do with them. Verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? They all knew the answer to that question. They all knew that, that they would pull their son out of a pit, out of a well, if he fell down on the Sabbath day. They wouldn't hesitate for a moment to do that. In fact, they wouldn't even hesitate for a moment to pull a cow out if it fell into a pit on the Sabbath day. But yet, they want to deny Jesus the right to pull this 
man, this person, out of a pit of sickness. You know, they, they would pull their animal out of a pit on the Sabbath, and they want to deny Jesus the right to pull a, a person out of the, this pit of desperate illness. They can't answer once again. They're completely silent. Verse 6, they could not reply to these things. In fact, one of the most striking things about this passage is that the religious leaders don't say anything. They do the setup. But I want to tell you, Jesus does the speaking. They're silent the whole time. They never say a word. Jesus takes over from the very beginning. They just sit there in sulking silence. I mean, this is a lost bunch. Because in their obsession to enforce their legalistic minutiae, these guys have completely forgotten what the whole point of God's law was, which was love, loving God and loving others. They've completely missed the point. Now listen, this ought to be a red flag, a warning to people like us. Because, as we saw earlier, we have an awful lot in common with the, you know, they, they, the Pharisees were, they weren't viewed as bad guys. They were viewed as just upright, law-abiding, pious, patriotic people. Just like most of us in this room. But they defined holiness by certain Boundary markers, external boundary markers that they had set up. Jesus is transgressing one of them. Can we do the same thing? Can we set up boundary markers by which we define holiness? External boundary markers? Absolutely. Absolutely. We know what the boundary markers are in our culture. You know, in our, in our Christian culture, you know, the, 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 the common perception is, hey, you know, as long as... Uh, we don't uh, abuse alcohol or use drugs or get into sexual uh, immorality. And as long as we, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're, we, we faithfully attend church, okay, uh, th- these are, th- that we're, the assumption is that we're, we're holy, growing Christians. Really? What does the Bible say? It says, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does this mean? Does Jesus mean, well, you need to have more rules than the scribes and Pharisees? No. What he means is that we need to have a deeper righteousness. A deeper righteousness where our hearts are being transformed by the Spirit of God. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you want to know whether or not what your spiritual health really is, if you really want to diagnose your spiritual health, you know, don't just go by a, a few sins, a few sins that you manage to avoid, okay? Um, you need to look at the heart, and, and ask yourself, am I growing in love? Am I becoming a more loving person? Am I becoming a more joyful person? Am I, am I getting more of my joy from the things of God and, instead of from 
the circumstances of my life? Am I becoming more of a tranquil person who's at, at, at peace? There's a, there's a contentment in me in, in all circumstances. Am I, am I growing in patience with other people because God's been so patient with me? Am I, am I growing in kindness toward others? Am I becoming a more tender, compassionate, kind person? Am I growing in goodness? Am I growing in, in faithfulness? Am I growing in my ability to trust God? Am I growing in gentleness toward others? Am I growing in, in self-control? All right. This is the fruit of the Spirit. All right. This is when, when the Spirit of God gets a hold of our lives and begins to transform us from the inside out. We see here not only the, the traps, but second, we see the teaching, the teaching. Because at this meal, with the dishes laid out on the table, Jesus now is going to lay out a few dishes of his own. <laughs> because Jesus is going to lay their hearts, our hearts, our prideful hearts. He's going to lay our hearts out on the table and expose them. Verse 7, now he told a, a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Verse 1 tells us that the, the Pharisees were, were watching Jesus very carefully. He was watching them. <laughs> and Jesus noticed that, that when they came in, he must have gotten there early, and he noticed that when they came in, they all kind of jostled, you know, to see who was going to get the most, the most honored position at the table. And... Jesus now tells this parable. It says, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Now just imagine this. Here's this guy who comes in to the wedding feast and uh, like we can tend to do sometimes, he overestimates his own importance. And he comes in and he thinks, well, I deserve to be up here. And so he goes very ceremoniously and takes the most honored seat. And as he's doing so, he's just basking in the adulation of the other people who are there. And he's thinking to himself, these people, they're all watching me. They know that I'm ta I've got the, the best seat, a higher seat than them. And, and hey, I deserve this higher seat because, well, I'm, I'm kind of important. I'm kind of a big deal. You know. And then, just at that moment, he, he feels a presence beside him and he turns and it's the host. Thinking, what, what is, what's he going to say to me? And the host leans down and he says, Sir, um, someone has come in more distinguished than you. And protocol demands that you get up. You're in his seat. And now with every eye still trained on him, the same eyes that were, that were watching him, and he was basking in their adulation just a few moments before. Now those same eyes see him get up from his seat with his head down and slink back. 
to the lowest place. Jesus said, that's the place you should have taken to begin with. He says in verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What principles can we take from this to deflate our pride. The first is this. Do not seek to do seek to honor God. Don't seek honor from people. Do seek to honor God. Don't seek honor from people. And you can't do both. You can't seek both. Paul says in Galatians 1:10, "For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God?" Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says this, and many other things just like it, because he knows that as, as in, in our fallen, sinful human nature, all of us have a built-in yearning for human approval. We've got this built-in, you know, uh, craving to be liked and admired and acclaimed and approved by other people. Instead of seeking God's glory, you know, we've seen this play out tragically this week in the life of Brian Williams. I wrote in my column in the paper yesterday about why I feel like we should be praying for Brian Williams instead of mocking him. But how did this happen? I mean, why would somebody who was already, you know, towards the top of his profession feel the need to lie or exaggerate at all? You know, it, it's, it's because when, when we... When we want to appear cooler or better or whatever, um, and, and, and we desire, you know, human admiration, um, we can make some really foolish choices. And it will never satisfy. We'll never, if that's what we seek in life, it's never going to satisfy. It won't. What if we repented of our yearning for human approval and acclaim and admiration and lived our lives for an audience of one. And just lived our lives to honor God. God says in 1 Samuel 2.30, Those who honor me, I will honor. Let's just seek the honor of God. Live your life for an audience of one. Second, Take yourself less seriously and take God more seriously. <laughs> like, the, like the man in this parable, we tend to overestimate our own importance. We tend to take ourselves far too seriously and don't take God seriously enough. It's why we spend so much time thinking about ourselves, obsessing about mistakes we've made. This is what's at the root of perfectionism. It's why we spend so much time worrying about whether everybody likes us. What's the answer? 
is the answer to think more of ourselves? Do we just need more self-esteem? That just plays right into our problem. Is the answer to think less of ourselves? Well, really, the answer is not to think more of ourselves or to think less of ourselves. The answer is to think of ourselves less. And think about God more. Get over ourselves. Learn to laugh at ourselves. Quit taking ourselves so seriously and take God a lot more seriously. Third, continually go back to the gospel. Because when we meditate on the gospel, when we meditate on the cross, it's like sticking a pin in our inflated egos and pride. When we meditate on the cross, it causes us to focus less on the sins and shortcomings of other people and to realize that we are great sinners ourselves who have a greater Savior. That's really what the Lord's Supper is all about. The Lord's Supper is about crucifying our pride by focusing on the crucified one. Because the thing that ultimately deflates pride is when we understand that Jesus loved us enough to go to the cross and die for our selfish, prideful, puffed up, inflated hearts. He went to the cross and died for all of that garbage and all the issues in our lives. See, Jesus in the story lays out all of our pride on the table, doesn't he? But instead of allowing us just to wallow in the condemnation that we deserve for it, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to lay himself out on a cross for our pride and for every other sin in our lives. And he's going to do that so that we can be forgiven and adopted into his family and so that we can come to another table today as forgiven sinners, part of the family of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that we can come to this table today as forgiven sinners. Thank you that you gave your life for our pride, our puffed upness, and all of the other sins in our lives that instead of allowing us to, to, to wallow in condemnation, that you went to the cross and took all of these things upon yourself and rose from the dead that we might have forgiveness and life. We thank you that you've given us a way in the Lord's Supper to remember your redemption. Use it to bless our lives now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today as one who has 
come to Christ by repentance and faith, if you are uh, resting, trusting in the finished work of Christ for you on the cross and in the resurrection, then he invites you to take part in this special meal right now. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.